In this series, we'll be taking a look at Paul's letter to the Romans, a church that Paul did not plant. However, he was instrumental through his letters and his time in Rome to establish the foundational concepts of the gospel and leading the way in discipleship. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. So uh, we, are, we are talking on a more mature subject today, Romans 1, 26 through 32. So last warning for any young ones who you don't want to hear certain terms uh, about sexuality to take them to one of our children's rooms. Otherwise, forever hold your peace. Okay. So uh, I'll be real honest with you. Whenever you get into this subject, not just sex in general with Christians, but the subject of heterosexuality and homosexuality, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult from the stage to to preach a stance on either way. And I've already preached two weeks on Romans 1. And a few weeks ago, I was before the Lord, and I just said, Lord, uh, I think it's time to move on to Romans 2. I know we had, God, you and I had sort of talked about this, and I had listened to another pastor do such a great job on it, but I don't know, it's summertime. People don't want to have to hear about what you think about sex. Let's just let them have fun. We'll hit them in the fall, right? Um, And... And after all, Romans 2 is full of really challenging theological issues that I believe the people in the church need to grapple with. And so I'm sort of on this, uh, this Wednesday going through this, and I get home, and I get a, uh, my phone buzzes. I get an email from our youth pastor, Matt O'Connell, incredible man of God, and he sends it out to me and pastors that he knows from around this country that he felt that God had the specific word for them. And so he has this dream, and he shares the dream, and in the dream, he's looking to preach out of Philippians in his Bible, but he can't find it. And what he knows is is his Old Testament is completely intact, but his New Testament is ripped in half horizontally with the top part gone and the bottom part still there. And he's troubled by it, and he wakes up, and he says, Lord, what does this mean? And so he emails us all, and he says, I believe this is the interpretation of the dream, and I believe this is for you. And so I want to read you a portion of this this morning, because this is why... We are going to be speaking specifically on these six verses this morning and why I believe it is so important that we spend time on these verses and getting it right. He said, the word of God is being preached as half of my new covenant is ripped out. This is what he felt like the Lord was showing him. I love my people and I purchase them with my blood. My word is ripped out horizontally because my new covenant is being taught with the emphasis only on love and grace. You see, I love my people. I purchase them with my blood. The only way my grace and love could be offered is if people understood the depravity of their sinful wickedness. The only way I can extend forgiveness, mercy, and love is if my son laid down his life as an exchange and a ransom through the faith of the people I love so much. My son needed to be sacrificed and judged in order for the pathway of forgiveness and liberty to be available to all, forgiveness and liberty from their own sin and bondage that they put themselves in. At the expense of my son, I have made my loving forgiveness Uh, flow unconditionally to those who believe in his name. At the expense of my son, I have judged their sins and evil deeds to those who believe in his name. At the expense of my son, my eternal wrath that was once upon all mankind that was quenched to those who believe in his name. To those who believe in his name, I have called sons and daughters. My second coming draws near and humanity will continue to believe that there is no sin in them. You hear that part? Humanity will continue to believe there is no sin in them. You are seeing this take place right now. I have called you to minister the truth in love and justice. I've called you to be a lamp in a world of darkness. And I've entrusted you with the message of hope, salvation, justification, forgiveness of sin through my son. Don't worry what they say about you. Don't worry what they do to you. I am the Lord who goes with you, behind you, and I'm with you always. 
So this is the letter I get after spending a whole day saying, Lord, do I really have to preach on Romans 1, 26 or 32? To which the Lord's like, yep, <laughs> you do. I want you to read all of it. I want you to read all of my new covenant. And so that's why we're going to be speaking on this this morning. And I, I want to say a few things, first of all, is give, give me the benefit of the doubt as we enter into uh, what is a touchy, if not awkward at times, subject matter, Okay. Give me the benefit of the doubt. Some of you know me well, some of you don't. Allow me to speak openly and understand that I have the utmost respect and empathy for people dealing with any sexual uh, temptations, desires, orientations, whatever you want to call it, that there is nothing but love. And that if you are in here and you have ever dealt with me personally on any of these issues, homosexuality, lust, pornography, uh, uh, fidelity in marriage, um, anything regarding sex, you know how I respond. You know that I love you. You know that I'll preach truth to you, but still walk the road with you. You know that I'll preach Christ's word and, and encourage you in that word, but I'll still walk alongside you and do life with you, right? So that's who I am. So I don't want you to hear condemnation this morning. I want you to understand that as we talk about sex and lust this morning, that we're not just speaking on the subject of homosexuality, but uh, sexuality in general. And there's a reason I didn't throw this in with the rest of Romans, as if you go and you look online for, like go and just type in, there's a website, uh, Sermon Central, and you can type in just Romans 1, 26 through 32. Very, very, very few of the hundreds of sermons on Romans 1 are actually just these six verses. It's usually encapsulated in a greater part of Romans. It would have been taught as a little five-minute segment like what I did last week and then glossed over. And I believe that is indicative to why we see such a massive split in the church on the understanding of homosexuality and sexual sin. Why are we not in agreement? Let me ask you something. Are we all in agreement? If you're a Christian, answer this. If not, just go ahead and just remain silent. Are we in agreement that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Are we in agreement that I have to know who he is to get access to the Father? Are we in agreement that God is the one who decides who goes to heaven or hell? Are we in agreement that I was dead to sin until I was made alive in Christ? Then why are we not in agreement on the subject of sexual sin. Homosexuality and heterosexual, and heterosexual relationships outside of marriage. We're not in agreement there. And I'm not gonna make you say yes to that one because then it gets really awkward and you're like, why didn't the person next to me say yes? Or some of you will say yes just to say yes or some of you will just get up and walk out. Don't get up and walk out, please. It's weird and I really think you will lose the blessing of the time of just sitting here and listening. Know that my heart comes with love in everything I'm saying with no condemnation as we walk through this. So here's the deal when it comes to our sexuality. We are the apex of creation. Do you know that? We are made in the image of God. So because we are made in the image of God, there is an order and a design to us. We are purposeful. I spoke on this last week. We are not at a one in a trillion parallel universe as Stephen Hawking would like to think we are, randomly just having morphed into existence. We are designed in the image of our creator, which means if we are designed in his image, then there is an order to our design. There is a purpose to it. Three things God gives us up to. 
three things that our God will give us over to. First one we see in 22. Claimed to be wise, they became fools. God gave them up to the lusts of their bodies. The lusts of their bodies. Verse 26, for this reason, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God gave them up to their passions and exchanged natural relations with one another. So the lusts of the bodies, God will give us over to the passions that we have for life, for one another, or for things. And in verse 32, it says, they also approve of those who practice them. I'm going to read the section of scripture here in a minute, but before we do that, I want you to see that when we speak of the wrath of God, I believe for a long time in America, the church got the wrath of God, sort of how Bruce Almighty got it in that movie with the same name, where he said that God is a bully with a magnifying glass and I am just an ant, right? That God's just sitting there waiting to burn you with the sun of his internal righteousness if you do something wrong. Whereas Paul gives a very different illustration of what the wrath of God looks like. He said the wrath of God is when God finally gives you over to that thing which you want so bad. When God stops correcting you and putting the barriers around you and letting you get caught for it. You ever feel like you always get caught? Anybody in here that person? My wife will tell you she's that person. She sinned twice in her life and both times she was caught. (laughs) She hates it. She's like, it's not fair. Why do I always get caught, right? Like she speeds and then boom, police, right? You ever feel like that's you, that person who gets caught? Some of you are like, no, I never get caught. I'm awesome. God doesn't love you. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was really nice to you earlier. I had to balance it out with something else. No, the fact is, though, when you are caught, when your conscience speaks up, that's, that's God. That's the Holy Spirit in your life saying, hey, don't do that. It's going to hurt you, and it's going to hurt people around you. And then you're going to be mad at me, so don't do that. Right? And what Paul is saying here is that the wrath of God is when he finally just says, okay, do it. Go at it. I I will take my hands off of you, and you can go at it. Let all of your passion fill your life. Let all of the lust fill your life. Let it take you wherever you think it's going to take you. And the newsflash, it never takes you where you hope it's going to take you. So this is what Romans 1, 26 through 32 says. Because of this, and the because of this is what we read last week in 25, which is they exchanged the knowledge of God for that of the created things. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. So, they, so that they do what ought not be done, and they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they only continue to do these very things, and then they approve of others who practice them. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, as we head into this subject this morning, God, give us grace. Give me grace to preach your truth with love and justice, Lord. That we will understand how much you care for us and how you see us as more 
than just sexual beings. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, I want to make something real clear here, is that that whole last section I read, furthermore, they do not think it's worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so he gives them over to a depraved mind. They become full of every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, yada, 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 right? That is not just for those who have exchanged natural relations one for the other. Do we understand that? That that is for all men and women who, who fall into the category of wanting to serve self and being born into sin. Does anybody here fall into that category? Everybody falls into that category, right? And so what he's saying is that what happens is God gives us over to a depraved mind and that with it, we become full of all of these other things. Lest we should judge one another. So it is not just saying people who struggle with homosexuality, they fall into all that other stuff and they're horrible people. It's saying, no, you, me, we all fall into that when we do not seek God's will, God's kingdom, God's ideas above our own. We will all fall into it. So here's what I mean when I say a design or a created order. In Genesis 2, 24, after it says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, this, God says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is the order, this is the design of a man and a woman that in a sexual union, that they become one flesh, that it is more than just the physical union of two bodies, but there is a spiritual connection, right? And for those of you in here who have engaged in the sexual act, you understand that with that person, while the physical moment lasted only a small amount of time, the connection with that person can last a lifetime. The thoughts, the cologne or the perfume they wore, the food places you ate together. They trigger memories and they trigger thoughts, don't they? You don't have to say yes to protect the guilty, but I know they do. They do. Why? If it's just a physical union and, and it's over with and it's done, why? Because in that moment, there was a connection of mind, body, and soul. Because we are made in the image of God. And God uses sex for more than just procreation, but for pleasure as well. And he uses it for us to understand his relationship to the, uh, to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we get a picture into something so much greater than the created world. We get a picture into the Almighty God through sexual relationship. So there's this created way. In fact, uh, Jesus refers to this in Matthew 19, right? We always... I've heard this argument a lot when it comes to uh, homosexuality in modern times. Well, that's an Old Testament thing. Uh, I, you're not going to hear me quote out of Leviticus at all here. That's not, I don't believe it, that you do that. I look and say, what is the design? What is the order? What is the purpose of sex and marriage? And then look at Gen uh, Matthew 19. Jesus says, have you not read Genesis? At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So then they are no longer two people, but one flesh. Now they're asking him about divorce in this. And they're saying, well, then why do you let us get divorced? He's like, because your hearts are hardened. I allowed Moses to give you certificates of divorce, but it was never the heart of the father from the beginning that when two people engage in a sexual act that they would be separated from one another because although you can separate the physical bodies, you cannot separate the spiritual. Unless and we'll talk about this more in a little bit here, unless you do break that spiritual bond. 
And there is the possibility of doing that. So if you're in here today, hear me on that. There is hope. There is the possibility of breaking that spiritual bond with past partners and only being united to the person you're with now. Talk about that later. So with this being the fact, we have to come to a point where there are dishonorable and disordered passions. So if things are ordered in sex and designed, then there has to be other ways that are not part of the order or not part of the design. That just stands to logic. It stands for reason. But here's what we must be okay with. As Christian men and women, we must be okay with calling a sin a sin and not try to justify our passions to fit our desires. I want to say that again because this isn't just about homosexuality. This is about sexuality in general. That we have to be okay with calling a sin a sin and not justify our passions to fit our desires. See, we all have passions. We all have things we're passionate about. It may be a hobby. It may be your career. It may be your family. It may be a future career. It may be schooling. And what we'll do is we will tend to make sure that our passion gets ahead of everything else that we have in life, and we will get it to align up with our desires. I know I'm supposed to desire the Lord and love the poor and serve others, but my passion is right here. And I feel like if God really loved me, he wouldn't call me to squash my passion. So I need my passion to meet my desires, right? This is not only very American, this is very human. This is ego, this is self, this is us, that I, I need to thrive in this world and my passions need to meet my desires. And so we will often look at things in our life which we know at the core of who we are as Christ followers to be sin, to not be following God, but in order to justify them as okay, in order for them to meet our desires, we will go ahead and we will move forward with them and just ask God for forgiveness or hope that he is going to uh, come in line with us or find a church that agrees with the way we're living. This is what we do. And this is what we've done. Is we've created churches that rather than just look at the scripture, say, well, this is what it says. This is what is clearly known as we have taken and we have made our passions fit our desires. So the scripture I just read has had some, some pushback to it as to not including, when we go back to 26 and 27, that it doesn't include consenting adults of the same sex in a relationship. And so one of the pushbacks are Paul was really condemning pagan rituals of the time involving homosexuality. Paul was uh, condemning men dominating young boys in a sexual way. But yet there's no support for either of those in the text or the culture. There's no support that if that's what Paul was condemning, why didn't Paul just say that? I mean, that's pretty specific. Why did, was Paul painting such a broad stroke? And if he was specifically talking about men, why does he open the section up with women exchanging relationships with women? You see, in the Greco-Roman world at this time, homosexuality was rampant. In fact, it was much, much more rampant than it is in our culture and in our uh, country. Did you know that? Did you know that by and large, homosexuality is still practiced and observed by less than 3% of the population in the U.S.? Now, it feels much larger than that because of media and the social media and the way that the message gets spread. It feels as if one in two, one in three must practice. But in Rome, at the time Paul is writing this, it probably was greater to 
So when Paul is speaking against the practice of homosexuality, the disorder of it, he is speaking directly to what is becoming a cultural phenomenon there in, in Rome. In fact, Aristophanes, who is a Greek playwright, writes that 14 of the first 15 emperors were all practicing homosexuals and heterosexuals. Right? They buy. And so Paul is addressing what had become the cultural norm. Now, to understand this, you have to understand sex more, right? (laughs) And watching porn won't help you do that. Our culture sees sex as only physical. It's the only way you can see sex if you're to use and abuse other people to get what you need. It has to be only physical. If it ever becomes more than physical, if there is an emotional and a spiritual level to it, then the way we treat each other sexually would be so atrocious, we would not consider ourselves civilized people. Right? We know this with anything else that we do with one another. We know this in, in a deal where we purchase vehicles from one another. We understand that a, a purchase of a vehicle is a physical thing and that it's a business deal and a transaction, and we treat sex as if it is a business deal and a transaction between two people or more. Sex goes beyond the physical into the spiritual union, this mingling of souls between the two genders, and the two genders, male and female, both represent the character of God. Do you know that? There's more on this in my sermon called Covenant or Contract. It's a series I did uh, two years ago. But the male and the female both represent God's character. They're both the fingerprints of God on humanity. And when they come together in a sexual union, there is a completion, a design, an order there that God made so we would understand him more. And so God created sex as a good thing. For procreation and pleasure. And in Genesis 3, we see that sin entered the world. Right? Genesis 3, sin entered the world. And when God gives you over to that sinful nature, as I mentioned earlier, that is the wrath of God. To be fully given over to that nature, to be fully consumed by lust of the eyes or the body, is when God removes his hands and you are experiencing the wrath of God. That should be a scary thing. Now, it's tough because this is what all of us immediately do is we do a real quick assessment of where we are in our lust and our sexual categories, and we go, God hasn't fully given me over, like 80% given me over, but not fully. I, I mostly have this under control still. And we lie to ourselves. We don't, we don't understand, and, and pay attention to this word I'm about to use because it applies to all of us, that we are all fractured in many ways that we are born fractured. Paul says it himself, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. We have this fracture in us. And so one of the most damaging things the church has done, and, and listen to this, is we have said that no one's born gay. And we use that to talk to people who are struggling with homosexuality, and we tell them, no one's born gay. You chose it, just stop choosing it. Well, here's the problem with that. Science has not proven either way whether or not there's the gay gene or any of that. It has not proven that. But we are all born fractured. We are all born sinful. Now, just because your fracture is different than the person sitting next to you 
or the person who's not even in this room because they feel that they're not allowed in here because the church has said your fracture is so disgusting or so bad you're not welcome or God can't heal you does not mean that they are any worse or better. Some are born with a fracture towards same-sex attraction. Some are born with a fracture towards uh, lust of the eyes and cannot stop looking at pornography, cannot stop having multiple partners. Some are born towards the fracture of gambling, cheating, lying, murderous thoughts. We're all born sinful, right? Let's stop looking at other people's sins and then putting ours on a chart as to where we are against them. Just because there is a struggle does not mean we get to act on the struggle. And I realize how that sounds. I'm just saying that some of you are thinking, that's not fair. To say that same-sex attraction is a part of a fracture is not fair, and I, I agree it is not fair. It is a unique challenge for that individual. It is a unique challenge, and here's the deal. Uh, when did fairness ever come into it? Five-year-old little boy gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. How is that fair? Right? How is that fair for him or his family? As a heterosexual man or woman, we are called to monogamy in Scripture, to be with one person for the rest of our life. How is that fair? Men, I know you're sitting there thinking quietly to yourself, smartly. See, my wife's way down there, so I can stand up here and say whatever I want. But how is that fair? And I'll be honest with you, as a man, there is a constant temptation for new conquests and new women, and your eyes are constantly drawn. Now, not all men in here have that. Just 99.9% .9 of them do. <laughs> but not all. And the Lord calls me to settle down and love just one woman. Gets all of this. I only get to share it with one woman. How is that fair? It's not. Amen. No, don't feel bad for her. You know, when it comes to this subject of monogamy, Scarlett Johansson, the prophetess, had something interesting had something interesting to say on it here back in February. She was quoted um, just she was quoted in Playboy magazine. And just so you know, I did not find the quote there. I actually found the quote from another pastor who was quoting this subject and this line. So I heard it in church. So, whew. Okay, we got past that. We did it, Jordan. All right. So this is what she said. You got to give credit where credit is due. That's where it was found. But this is what Scarlett Johansson says, and this is the idea of the American culture when it comes to sex and marriage. She says, I think the idea of marriage is very romantic. It's a beautiful idea, and the practice of it can be a beautiful thing. I don't think it's natural to be a monogamous person. She's right. I might be skewered for that, but I think it's work. It's a lot of work. And the fact that it's so much work for so many people, or everyone, she says, the fact, that fact proves that it's not a natural thing. It's something I have a lot of respect for, and I've even participated in, but I think it definitely goes against some instinct to look beyond, end quote. So what she's saying is truth. Marriage is incredibly difficult. Can I get an amen? Yeah. 
It's hard. It's so much work having to die to self daily, weekly, to put someone else's needs above your own, to love them before you love you, to care about them more than you care about you. Marriage is hard. Why would God call us into something so hard? It can't be natural. And if it's so hard, it can't be a good God's desire for us to actually partake in a monogamous marriage. That is the concept and the motto of America. If it's easy, if it's pleasurable, and if it brings happiness, it's for me. I think that's what they're going to replace in God we trust with on the dollar. Easy, happiness, and pleasure. It is, right? These are the things that we say are good, and if anything goes against that, we speak vehemently against it. She's preaching a partial truth. Marriage is work. It is difficult. But it doesn't mean it's not what God wants from us. I've spoken from this stage a hundred times that it's in the difficult, it's in the pain, it's in the suffering that we grow, that we become better. For those of you, who's, been, who's in here married more than 30 years? Look around. Congratulations. Congratulations. Well done. Would you trade them in? Really? Not even? I figured at least this one. I knew you guys were all good, but right? All right. Oh, she's got your house broken. It took her 30 years. It's difficult, but every couple that I talk with who has been married for three decades or more says they wouldn't change a thing. They are more in love with the person than the day they married them. The kind of relationship they have is one that Hollywood writes movies about, that we would have that kind of love, that we would care for someone else that deeply. Is it hard? Are they imperfect? Do they mess up? Is it still days that they wish they weren't with the other person? All the time. All the time. But they stuck together and they've made something work, and together they have created something greater than who they were separately. So here's the deal. Culture wants to take your sex life from an instinct to an identity. American culture, with its current sexual revolution, wants to teach young people that your sex life is not just an instinct, but it is your very identity. And that to tell somebody that they can't be happy impacts them directly. To speak to a friend who is, has same-sex attractions speaks directly to their identity as being gay and not being a human or a son or daughter of God. And that because of that, I cheat them out of a happy life. That they cannot have a happy life if they cannot practice an erotic uh, love towards someone of their choosing. So that's what we have boiled ourselves down to, that is our sexual identity. We are no longer human beings. We are no longer a brain and a heart and a soul. You are a sexual identity. What we use for pleasure and procreation becomes the very core of what all of you are, according to our culture. If I can't practice sexuality with who I want to, I can't be who I am. This is another one that, that we hear, and we hear this from both homosexual and heterosexual people. I can't have sex with my partner until we're married? Are you kidding me? Well, then how will I show them I love them? I don't know. Do something nice for them. <laughs> Sacrifice. The stuff that you're going to have to do in marriage once the sex is over with. Right? <laughs> I don't mean for all of marriage. I just mean, you know, you, you, you know. 
the real stuff, the storge love, the agape love, the love that says your needs ahead of mine. Our generation is currently more influenced by this revolution than they are by the scripture. And I think God has a few thousand years on this generation's leaders. But here's the deal, just in case, I wanna run through this illustration with you and then we'll wrap up. Look around the audience right now. Look around. I see a bunch of really nice people. You all are so nice, aren't they? Look around, look at the person next to you. Doesn't that look like a nice person? Now, I know nice is a very vanilla white word, but the fact is, I want to say you're all real nice. (laughs) Nice. We're surrounded by nice people in this church, and oftentimes, as we look around, we say, he can't be that bad, right? He's not that bad of a person. He's really nice. So here's the deal. We all admit that even nice people sin a little bit, just a teensy bit. And so if we're going to assume that even a nice person sins, let's just say they sin three times a day on average. Morning, noon, and uh, dinner, there's a little bit of sin going on, right? They apologize for it. The rest of the day, though, they are absolute saints. They just, three little sins a day. Well, let's just then, for illustration's sake, say that person started sinning when they were 10. We know the truth is when they started breathing air. But let's say they started when they were 10 and sinned three times a day until they died at the age of 80. If they did that, that person will have sinned 76,650 times. And that's a nice person. That's a good person. I I could personally pick out three people in here who fit in that category. That's it. The rest of you are well into the millions. (laughs) And that means that is 76,000 times that that person is going to have to stand and give an account before an almighty God. 76,000 times. Here's why the subject in Scripture, the subject of sexuality in Scripture seems so mean. Because we know people in homosexual relationships or in heterosexual non-married relationships. We know people in there and we love them and they are happy living with one another and their life is good. How can I tell them this? I can't tell them this. Who am I? I'm one of those ones with the 76,000 plus sins. I can't speak this to them. If I can't practice my Eros love with a partner, how can I show them I love them? I just want to say that if, if we believe that, if we really believe that as Christian men and women, then we don't understand what God saved us from. If we believe the only way to show love to another person is through an erotic type of love, then we don't understand how God designed us and who he made us to be. We just fundamentally don't understand it. And instead, we have taken our culture's definition of how I express love to my partner, and we have adapted that as our, more than our instinct, but our identity. Married couples, you don't get off this hook either. Married couples struggle with the same thing just as well, porn, lusting after someone at work or at the gym. failing to show your partner how much you love them and continuing to be there for them. You see, sexuality is something that does not get fixed with a heterosexual male-female relationship. Sexual sins is not something that gets fixed. It is something that will always be there. It will always be a part of our life. It will always be something we have to lay before the Lord and say, I lay my desires both in life and in my sexuality before you, Lord. 
Purify my mind. Purify my heart. I told you, this is a difficult sermon to preach. The only one more difficult is when I talk about money. Sex and money. Isn't that interesting? But to pretend that you're going to walk through this life without a problem with uh, sexuality or without a problem with lust is to pretend that you could walk through a swarm of Africanized bees without any protection and just be like, no, no, I'm going to leave them alone. I'm going to leave them alone. That's great that you're going to leave the bees alone. Here's the deal. They're not going to leave you alone. Right? They're going to sting the crap out of you. I'm going to just leave sex alone. Fantastic. Society is not going to leave you alone with its message of sex. You will see it everywhere. You will open emails. You will drive down the street. You will go into the Christian bookstore. And in the mirror, you will see a reflection of something sexual. Every single place you go, society will not leave you alone. So don't pretend that you will just walk through life unscathed by it because you said a prayer or asked God to forgive you. You have to be, meant, you have to be focused on overcoming it. Tim Keller says this. He says, the church has to be better than sex. I don't know what kind of church Tim Keller pastors, but uh, he says the church has to be better than sex. And then he goes on to say this, and this is how we get to this point. He says, Christians will fall prey to the world's view of sex unless we create a community or an alternative city. In this alternative city, singles enjoy their kingdom mission and practice sexual abstinence joyfully. Mm -hmm. Just go ahead, take that one in for a second. Practice sexual abstinence joyfully. They live in community with Christian families who don't make an idol out of family or make singles feel abnormal. One of the reasons it's hard to practice the discipline of sex-free romantic involvement is that we don't have a significantly large community of people who create this alternative city. You see, even inside the church, there is this draw and this attraction. Well, you better get married. Well, get married, have a family, have sex. That's where meaning is. I mean, I bought into it. Like, I laughed at this when I was studying this and I saw this and, and Tim Keller says, uh, singles can enjoy a kingdom mission and practice sexual abstinence joyfully. Really? Joyfully? Okay, so I, I, I was abstinent up until I got married, barely. And I can tell you that for the last few years of that time, there was no joy about it. It was just constant struggle. In fact, my prayers at night went something like this. God, be with my mom and dad. Be with my brother. Help me, help me do well on my test tomorrow. Don't let me die before I have sex. Please, don't let me die. You know you've prayed it too. If there are any high schoolers or junior hires in here, you've prayed it. Just don't let me die before I... I can't imagine getting to be happy in heaven if I didn't get to have sex on earth. And this, I mean, I, I went on mission trips. I love the Lord. I, I, I volunteered in the church. So I was fully kingdom-minded. But I did not have a community around me that said, you enjoy your abstinence joyfully. Understand that God has made you for this, and there will come a time when you will partake in it, and it will be incredible. But enjoy abstinence for now. Even the church doesn't do that. Tim Keller, now I get what he means when he says the church has to be better than sex. We have to be better than this notion that the end-all, be-all of life is a sexual relationship with someone. Because that is a lie bought into by a culture that wishes to sell you everything it pushes using what? Sex. And if you believe your identity is wrapped up in sex, then you'll buy whatever they tell you will make your sexual identity better, stronger, more attractive, right? 
Acting to, on lust and dishonorable passions always leads to the ungrounding of your mind. It always leads to the ungrounding of your mind. And I've had numerous homosexual couples here at the church, Christian and non-Christian. I have homosexual people at the church right now. And I talk with most of them and I love them. And they ask me, am I allowed to be here? Of course you're allowed to be here. All the guys addicted to porn are still here. All the guys who overeat are still here. Right? We act like those aren't sins somehow, like overindulgence in food and pornography and the guys who cheated on their taxes, he's still here. I'm just kidding. All of a sudden, everybody's heads are like, what the? Like, we're still here. We're still community. Because I still have a heart of repentance. Because I want to be better. I still want to give the Lord my life. I still confess my sins before him. I come for him and say, Lord, take this. Make me a better person. Repent and confess. Repent and confess. I love that word. I'm going to close here with this. That word that Matt O'Connell sent me. The dream that God gave him. At the expense of my son, I have made my love and forgiveness unconditionally to all those who trust in his name. At the expense of my son, I have judged their sins and evil deeds to all those who believe in their name. At the expense of my son, my eternal wrath that was once upon mankind has been poured out and quenched to those who believe in Jesus. Let's be better church with this subject of homosexuality. It's okay to disagree with what the culture's view on it is, but have an unrelenting love for those who are struggling with it. Remind them that Jesus loves them even in the midst of what they're going through. Can we do that? Can we have an agreement on that? It's that. If we can create that kind of culture, then we can create a culture where people feel as welcomed in the church as they would in a gay bar, as accepted in the church as they would in a gay bar. Because they know that there are people here who will love them and who are just as fractured as they are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with humility and brokenness. Lord, I pray that this message rings true in the hearts of those listening here today, heterosexual or homosexual, whatever they, they, their fracture is, Lord, we're all fractured in something. And I pray, God, that we can lay it before you. I pray that the heterosexual male or female in this room struggling with lust or sex, Father, can come before you and lay it at your feet and say, I have held on to this for such a long time. I have believed that this is who I am and can lay it at the cross, Lord God. Pray the same for those in here with homosexual bends and, and leanings and, and practices, God, that they can lay that before you and say, this is not my identity. My identity is son or daughter of Jesus Christ. That's my identity. Lord, shape our minds. Don't let culture. Shape our hearts. Don't let culture. In Jesus' name. close every service here by observing the Lord's communion. The bread is the body and the juice is the blood. And as Jesus did with his disciples, he said, when you gather together, take and remember me. So all we ask is that you have a relationship with Jesus, that you've given your life to him, you've confessed and repented of your sin, and you can come forward. If you haven't, if you've never made that step, you don't know what that means, our prayer room is open right back here to my left. We invite you to go and talk with one of our prayer partners and enjoy communion for the first time, maybe. And as you go, the Bible says to sit and examine your life when you take communion, to examine your heart. 
And so as you come forward to the six stations, three up front and three in the back, we encourage you to do that. You can go back to your seat and partake of the communion whenever you wish, but use it as a time to come before the Lord and examine your life. Amen.